All right, welcome back to the EI Podcast. This is going to be episode two, and we're just going to talk about technological advances uh, from 1979 until the present day, because that's kind of the span of law enforcement work that everybody in the room worked in. So we're going to kick this episode off with uh, Gary Eastridge talking about his first few weeks in a patrol car all the way through homicide and then we've got kyle coming in from about the 1985 era the reagan era reaganomics uh and and talk about how the technological aspect of police work changed over that span of time up until the present day with modern social media and technological advances all right guys let's bring in kyle and gary Welcome back for episode two, as I fade the music out like a good engineer. (laughs) Nice. So let's start. Let's start with Gary, which is so odd to say that, you know, being that it's my dad and all. But uh, let's talk about 1979 police work. Um, I got to say that was a big influential piece to my child rearing years was, you know, my idea of a policeman was like, gun badge couple of gold cross pins straight stick and uh a revolver and loop loaders right that was about it that was that was really it yeah that and a shotgun yeah maybe a shotgun right the the tool if you were lucky tools (laughs) of the trade right Uh, i mean this is were there handheld radios available then well there were handhelds but uh they were extremely limited Right. Uh, I was always one that got to work early. It's it's a, I don't know where <laughs> it came a, from. It's a habit. It's still a habit to this day. It worked for me until about two years before I retired, <laughs> and then it was slide in at the last minute. By by getting to work early, I could get a handheld. Sometimes we we had. Uh, I worked four shifts central. My first uh, assignments so on the street. What was four shifts central? So well, central being the middle part of town, right? Well, Central being the middle part, at that time there were three divisions. There was North Side, Central, and South Side. Uh, we're talking, I hit the street June 1st of 1979. Um, keeping in mind that during that, that time, we had the briefing stations. So you had uh, 1979, June of 79, you hit the street. And uh, you like to get to work early because you might get a handheld radio. Might. There there was probably a handheld for every five officers. Wow. Uh, So if you didn't get there early, you didn't get a handheld. So did any of that rely rely on seniority? The supervisors each had a, a handheld. Other than that, it was first come, first serve. It's yeah. still that way when I came on. Now, really? There were some of the senior guys that would learn little tricks, like right. uh, having a, a buddy from the previous shift <laughs> grab a handheld for him and set it back. Now, keep in mind, during this time, the police department operated on fixed shifts. Well, most police departments did. They, uh, well, let me back that up. You're going to have to edit that. Keep in mind, during this time, the police department was on rotating shifts. There were a uh, there were three shifts: day shift, 
night shift in graveyards. Day shift was 7 to 3, night shift was 3 to 11, graveyards 11 to 7, and then there was a fourth shift. The fourth shift was called the schoolboy shift. (laughs) And uh, the reason they called it that was guys who were attending college, the LEAP program, law enforcement educational something Yeah, it was like a federal program. Federal program that would reimburse you for uh, college tuition. A lot of guys were on that. So you would go to school during the day and your work shift was in the evening. The The fourth shift was a 10-hour shift where the others were eight-hour shifts. We worked from 4.30 at night till 2.30 in the morning. Uh, so that's where I was lucky enough to be assigned my first uh, few years on the police department. It was until they did away with rotating shifts and went to permanent fixed shifts. That yeah. happened right about the time I came out of the FTO program six years later. Yeah, the uh, when I when I hit the street in early '03, it had been in June of '03. Uh, actually, maybe May of '03. It was everybody was on a, an eight hour or a ten hour shift, unless you went to a desk job, and right. those ten hour shifts. The perk of it was nice because you worked an 80-hour pay cycle in a two-week or what normal people would consider a two-week pay cycle. You worked it in eight days, and then your other six days you had off. Right. And uh, that original fourth shift kind of set the tone for the entire PD. Uh, When I came on, they had done away with Monday to Monday, Tuesday to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so on. Uh, there were even Saturday to Saturday shifts back then. And right when I came out, they went Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday overlap, meaning your counterpart on the other side would come in on, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night. But we all had handheld radios issued from the get-go, actually issued in the academy. And from what I understand, that had only taken place about two to three years before that. Before that, it was a pool of handheld radios and batteries, a bank of them at the station. So technologically, like departments decided, well, it's probably a pretty good idea to give everybody communication when you're That's outside your, of your vehicle. It's the most right? important thing a cop has. Especially is a street cop. Right. right. Exactly. So During, tell me, before we get too far into that rabbit hole, how did you guys compensate for the nights you didn't have a handheld radio? You just did what you had to do. You checked on each other more. Yeah. You, right. uh, we were real big on checking on each other. Our, our What do you guys call it now? Like sector district partners, partners sector yeah. partners. But yeah. uh, You guys, and, and like what, I'm still and, there. And what yeah. Kyle's talking about is – if uh, one of my the guys on my shift went out on traffic, the guys who weren't tied up would drive by that traffic stop Absolutely. and check on it. If there was a call that had a potential, domestic calls, 99% of domestic calls are mundane. Right. The 1% that aren't are where the problem comes in. So if you hear a trouble unknown, uh, a domestic or something like that, you always went by and even drive by, see everything's going going okay, set down the street in case you're needed. Right. I'll give you a, a little example of that. Uh, after when I was working patrol north side, uh, Dan Flanagan and I were going in at the end of our shift 
which was graveyard. So we got off seven a.m. Seven a.m. and we're we're kind of slow rolling through a neighborhood by that old North Division, and a lady runs out and waves us down. Obviously, been a victim of an assault. She's beat up, and and uh, she, we didn't have time to get out on the radio say where we were at, and we end up in a hellacious fight with this guy who her husband who was high on PCP that went on forever until they they started trying to do the process of who didn't show up the roll call turn in. they right. roll call there were times you would call for roll call in to a see, situation like to see that see where a guy was yeah mm-hmm. yeah we yeah. we had uh when I came on, we didn't have GPSs, and uh, a lot of the old heads from my era, my my brand new era, had worked in the era of not having a handheld radio. So it was real common for them to hang the radio hand mic on the outside of their, their door. So they'd roll their window down and just have the hand mic to where, at least if I can crawl back to my, my right. police car, I, I can, can fight my way back to the car. I can fight my way back to the car. For help. But uh, one of the things that would happen is sometimes you would hear some garbled radio traffic, maybe somebody screaming, and immediately we would call, hey, give a roll call. We don't know where everybody's at, so everybody they would call everybody's unit number, and whoever didn't check in, they would say their last location was here. Right. Um, and I hadn't heard that in probably 15 years now, but – the handheld radio being an issued piece of equipment has probably saved a number of people's lives. Oh, absolutely, well, yeah. But keep in mind, radio technology at that time, right? Uh, the the equipment, and I don't know if it was so much technology or if it was a matter of department spending practices, uh, going with the cheapest bidder, the lowest bidder. But if you rode the green pastures area. Oh gosh! You, oh yeah, I did. There, right, there in. was a very large portion of that that your radio wouldn't work if you were lucky enough to get a handheld. And, and that and there's nothing scarier than being out on a hot call and clicking and asking for another unit and realizing your your transmission's not going through. That's when you learn uh, a lot about uh, cooperation between little agencies around. They need you. You need them. Yeah. So we try to try to yeah. keep a good For, relationship. You, you yeah. mentioned green pastures. So, uh, you know, you you'd mentioned in the previous podcast that well, I was a newer guy, so I got put in the rural area. Uh, when I came on, you had to have six, eight, ten years on before they would put you by yourself in a rural area. Just, just based on kind of your personality and how you handled business. Because they didn't want to put somebody brand new in an area they'd get they'd they'd get over their head. So that that area you talk you're talking about, even up until two thousand nine or ten, before radios went digital, uh, it was well known we didn't do anything out there if there wasn't a pair of us. And right. if there was a pair of us, that was all you had. Well, by the time I worked out there it's a it's a rough area too. Yeah, it's a still little, is to this day. We rode partners out there, and we were the only cars left, at least in the north division, that rode partners. Everybody else had slowly, they had kind of started going with the approach. They could put more cars on the street. They split guys up, 
but they kept that a partner district just because it was so rough and they were so far from help. When I when I hit street, the uh, the northeast quadrant of Oklahoma City was where the last three officers killed in the line of duty had been killed. Yeah. So traditionally and historically, they had made that a two man area. Oh, okay. Yeah. When I rode with uh, Bruce Smith back in the late eighties. They had just started loosening that. Yeah. It was very unusual to have a one-man car in, on the east side of Oklahoma East side. Central East Side, even and and uh, far northeast. But even far northeast, they were more apt to put a one-man car out there than right. they were in, in in Central Northeast. So that brings up a, a an interesting concept: the partnered car. That's kind of something that's gone by the wayside nationally and i i feel like it was rooted out of that technological era when maybe there wasn't as much manpower there wasn't as many cars there what you your backup was sitting next to you right yeah so and what do you think caused that shift there were i was on the shift when when that shift or change came about and there were competing theories about the benefits, whether a two-man car was a benefit or a negative. Right. Did you get complacent because you know you had your backup sitting next right. to you right. versus being a little more cautious because you know you're going to have to call for your backup? Uh, you know, I think it came down to manpower allocation. Uh, well, take-home car program changed that too. Yeah. Because every, everybody wanted a take-home car. And a partnership's going to get one. Yeah. Take-home car, for those that don't know, prior to about 1986, I believe, uh, everybody had an assigned car, but you checked when you went to work, when you broke lineup, you went and got the car that was assigned to you. Partners or teams always had the same car. Then there were pool cars. Pool cars were extras that weren't assigned. Later, they began a take-home program where officers who lived within Oklahoma City limits could drive their car home. Uh, they could also use it to, to go to the grocery store. They could take their family to a movie. They encouraged that. Actually. They encouraged it as a kind of a crime deterrent right. thing. And then, of course, you have guys who did things they shouldn't have in their right. take home car and always and that the program or weren't carrying was was then <laughs> right restricted quite a bit more but, but you, you do uh, there there is an element of that that made a little sense because mm-hmm. when you're talking mid 80s about when I came on I don't know what it is now but north side you might have Four guys for the shift on graveyards for the entirety of Norsic side. Right, and then I think we're we're rapidly approaching those days. And when I, you I, say North side, you're talking about a sector of the city. Well, at the time, I mean, it's yeah. divided up different now. But I forty has been historically the right. the boundary. For, forty and thirty five. Yeah. Uh, are are the are the boundaries between the quadrants of the city? And those that aren't familiar with Oklahoma City. We're 650-some square miles. Yep. When I started, you only had about 200,000 people crammed into that right. 600,000. 
you take the boroughs of New York City is only slightly bigger in area than in area uh, than Oklahoma City, and you've got twenty million crammed in the same area that we've got two hundred thousand crammed right. in. You can leave the northeast, far northeast point of Oklahoma City, and drive for an hour towards the southwest portion of the city and still be in city limits. Yeah. Uh, my very first uh, dive into police work was the northwest quadrant of the city. Up until the last few years was very rural. And there was a long stretch of state highway that had no neighborhoods, no real right. population on it, that is now populated and has the uh, zip code of another municipality. Uh, so in those eras, or in that era, uh, handheld radios were questionable as to whether they would reach. Um, yeah, yeah. And I had good district partners. We all had uh, like ham radios. I even had a radio yeah. nerd partner that set up a repeating tower so that we could talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's something that modern cops really face is, hey, I'm, I'm going on a call and you're 30 minutes from me. Uh, other than maybe some of our rural municipalities or our unincorporated areas like Texas that, you know, have the constabulary system or whatever, where there might be two people for a three, 400 square mile area. Uh, and I learned to work with other jurisdictions really well. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking and, of, speaking of other jurisdictions, a lot of people don't realize there's like 17 jurisdictions in the Oklahoma city area. Right, we have numerous cities, small within city that right. are that we completely encompass. I had uh, Bethany, the city of Bethany and War Acres was within my district. Yep, same here. And and I worked a lot with those guys. But bear in mind, uh, that's uh, the days of the pool car and all that. My pool car had a county radio in it. And the city, I didn't put it in there. Right. Somebody else did, but out of necessity, I used it. Yeah, there and were I, times that the county was your primary backup, right? Because you knew there were no Oklahoma City officers Even, within 30, 45 well, minutes. From I, I remember on. I remember you know Oklahoma City has those. Uh, it's a big enough city. It's got pockets of bad areas. Yes. So you had, like Gary mentioned earlier, you had the east side, which is notoriously rough. South side had several areas. I rode a lot on what we called the 10th Street District, which was all the strip bars. And yeah. back in the early days, it was bikers and crank and all that kind of thing. Crank. And I got in a fight with a drunk at a U-Totem parking lot. And my backup was there, one who just ended up doing a play-by-play over there. He's getting his ass kicked. You better right. get some help. Yeah. I, and yeah. how many times have we heard of the the helicopter landing? Well, I did it and, once. And and well, I didn't land and it, the but. observer being your backup. Right. We, we did a drug way a drug raid on the east side. Uh, I, when I was in Air One. We did air support for that raid, and Mark Danner ends up chasing a guy back through some backyards and gets in a hell of a fight. And I get the pilot to land in the street, and I run. To the, I couldn't get anybody directed to him, yeah. so I, I I landed, and he dumps me out, and I run over there and help him. So, and you mentioned crank. I heard yeah, Brian I, pick well, up on that. 
you know, there are a lot of people that are potentially going to listen to the podcast that have no idea what the word crank means. Right. A, a crankster <laughs> is now called a meth monkey. Right. right. Oh, I mean, they're... Or a meth head. Or, yeah. head or, yeah. This was the early days when it actually took some skill to make methamphetamine, yeah. right? Yeah, home chemistry yeah. set. Yeah. Not yeah. kill your whole household. Well, and I would but, say that's probably along the lines of another technological advance we've had. Um, better meth? But, well, no, just easier methods to cook it. And yeah. uh, when I hit the streets in 03... It was not uncommon to encounter people that were on methamphetamine multiple times during a shift. Yeah. And when it talk when you talk about technological advances or legal advances, uh, Oklahoma passed a pseudoephedrine law in about '05, where it made it very difficult to buy the precursor for methamphetamine, right? Which was cold medicine. Not trying to blow the lid off that but the reason you can't go buy Sudafed in bulk now is because of that and most other states followed suit and that was one of the few laws i saw have a have an immediate impact throughout the community because it was very difficult to buy the precursor but all it did was change the method yeah and now the cartels have perfected right. the, the uh, manufacture ice. of methamphetamine. Ice was another term right. for crank or speed or, or whatever. But, but but in the you got to understand the kind of the culture that went along with that. We've had phases, drug phases Huge. in our career. And when I came out, Gary was already uh, dealing with biker gangs and Biker gangs is what we knew as the bad guys. We we had no idea in '85 what a gangbanger uh, by Gang today's state. Right, yeah. it was all bikers and methamphetamine was a truck was, driver and biker drug. It was right, and we used to do those. We do we we get CB radios and try to do deals with truckers and stuff. But right, and then CB right radios the, talk yeah. about technological. Who it, owns a CB now? How many people go and buy a Dodge you Caravan buy them yourself? I yeah, mean, how many people now go buy a Dodge Caravan and have the CB radio upgrade package? Right, it's <laughs> not a thing, right? Yeah. But we had them in all of our scout cars. Yeah, we we did it because it was just another communication oh, source. Man. I made it until mobile phones came out right. in uh, around 86 i can rem- i can 80, still remember probably so, a little uh, probably 87 88 because let's back the bus down to 87 88 uh when we talk about how technological advances influenced law enforcement how much did you pay for your first bag phone in 87 uh, it was hundreds of do- i don't remember but i made payments on it yeah, but you you have it's more to than you could buy a new uh, iPhone for. Oh, absolutely! I I went to Sailor uh, One and did the payment plan to pay for one. But let me expand on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, when we came out, when I came out, and I know when Gary came out, you bought your own bulletproof vest. Wow! Anything extra you wanted. Uh, a, a backup weapon or I- anything extra, 
you paid for yourself. So by the time phones came out, ticket books, ticket books. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anything cutting edge. We had battles equipment and we had tuxols and some others and we local go, vendors. Right. Yeah. But, uh, well, I'll never forget. It was like, it was probably around my ninth birthday and I'll never forget that because I got a Smith and Wesson 622, which I just found the box for a few weeks ago. Good. Uh, it was my ninth birthday, and I remember both of you all bringing in your brand new bag phones from Cellular One. Yeah, I was like, "Well, how do you use that?" And it looked like a corded, cabled phone, and it had a massive battery pack. And Kyle said, "Well, we can't use it because it's like twenty-five cents a minute, not till seven p.m. Right? It's yeah, seven but p.m. At seven it p.m. It's free." Oh, I rode graveyard, so it was perfect for me. Exactly yeah. right. But I'll tell you another thing: those damn things were so powerful. I knew my phone was ringing if I was at a car writing a ticket or or whatever, because it would pop my PA speaker. My PA speaker would start popping when yeah. the call came in, which is probably. Yeah. And with those bag phones, we use the magnetic mounted antennas. Right. We just stick them to the the screen, which the, is right between the driver's compartment and the passenger compartment for hauling prisoners. And you had all of those radio waves right. yeah. driving directly into your right or left ear, depending if you were in a lot of things. Yeah. Now. Well, those uh, those were still in use when I came out in '03. They had just taken up the supervisor's bag phones because the city actually bought bag phones for oh, yeah. all of your first line supervisors. Um, when I went through uh, basically a kind of an introduction to you're going to be in patrol now, and these are some of the tools you need, which oddly enough was taught by one Mr. Wade Gorley, the now current chief of police oh, yeah. for Oklahoma City. And he pulled a cell phone out of his pocket and it was a Nokia track phone. Yeah. And he said, if you don't have one of these and most of us didn't, he goes, almost all of you are going to need a cell phone to be able to function and patrol because you're going to need to call dispatch. You're going to, you're, you're going to need to call and check for people for warrants. Uh, right. You're going to need to call other agencies, et cetera. And I, that was one of the banner moments I remember going, I guess I got to get a cell phone right. now, but, uh, but I remember back in that era, you guys having those bag phones and that was a major technological leap because you could instantly contact somebody at home or, uh, you know, a dispatch or whatever it was to get an instant information feed directly to you. Whereas before you might have to call on a radio and somebody make a phone call, et cetera. And that was still a bleed over into my era, yeah, which was kind of interesting. So cell phones were a massive technological improvement. Um, and then when the iPhone came out, that changed That's the far game. far different. Yeah. You know, what, what was interesting for me is to go to see the progression of the cell phone go from the large bag phone. The brick. To the brick. I wanted a brick so bad, oh, yeah. and they were $1,200. And I remember I, when you got a brick phone. Well, I had one assigned to me yeah, in, in narcotics. Yeah. That was the only place, uh, the, the first place I was ever assigned a phone. But what we saw was this this huge downsizing of, of the equipment. 
That's we a went real from oxymoron, a, 30, a huge downsizing. Yeah, a 35-pound bag phone. And I can remember when I went to Homicide and somebody came up, and I believe it was the Motorola StarTac maybe. Yes. The oh, little yeah. flip Everybody phone. Everybody had to have And that. it went to you in your front pocket. And then all of a sudden that the, the philosophies changed and the size came back in. But you were talking about the ways that the cell phone changed police work. One of the first things I did was get the cell, the uh, the phone booth numbers of all the phone booths on the Deuce. The Deuce was Northeast Second, three hundred blo- block of Northeast. Basically, Bricktown now. North it's, Bricktown. Yeah, it's North Bricktown. Which, At that oh, time, was the roughest one oh, block yeah. area in Oklahoma City. A lot which, of heroin, a lot of. Which for people that are going to a concert at the Criterion in Oklahoma City right now <laughs> have no idea the violent nature of oh, that, that neighborhood. Was terrible. Down the there. the uh, the funny part about cell phone tech is you know growing up as a kid in the downtown area and uh, I I'll never forget seeing my father go to investigations and he had a flip phone. And hearing the sound of the starch from the Wrangler's break when you shove that in your yeah. back pocket. Right. And then the days of like, hey, I don't have to hold this thing that looks like an actual phone with no yeah. cord up to my head. Right. I've got a little a, a pocket-sized phone. Um, and then Bluetooth. 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 We're, we're jumping way ahead. PW, Phil Williams. Yeah. I can remember him walking in, and I'm like, why are you talking to yourself? Right. I have a Bluetooth and device. And he had a blue. He was the first guy I ever saw with a Bluetooth device. I ended but, up getting one that was just like an intercom speaker that I could activate when I – in homicide. Now, this is way in there, but uh, I'd work a scene. I would – get my intercom going now it's all in your phone yeah right but i had a, a bluetooth intercom that as i worked the scene i'd call my partner who was doing interviews and i would tell him Update. what the scene looked like what right. we're learning at the scene well how about this how about the days of having a headset that plugged into your cell phone yeah and oh, yeah. having hands free and a lot of times when I was a new cop, you still had cops that had Nokia phones or things like that. And they would have a hardwired phone and plugged into uh, a headset that they would talk to. It was talking to us directly about on a cellular device, calling us on the phone or making a group call and saying, hey, I need to go to this address and look for X, Y, and Z. Right. And that changed the dynamic quickly. And then when iPhones and group messaging and things like that came out. The ability to send a photograph. Oh, The absolutely. ability to send a BR photo, a Bureau of Records photo, a mugshot, and say, hey, I've got this guy, and he says he's so-and-so. And you could actually send a photograph between each other. Right. Let's talk about that for a minute. One of my, uh, in one of my trips through patrol, the ability to identify people other than scars, marks, tattoos, and call the Bureau of Records and say, email me a photo of the the information he's getting. That's even beyond our time. But when I first went to investigations in 93, with your typewriter that with you my purchased. Typewriter, we all had, uh, what were they, Polaroid Instamatic cameras. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your your 
crime scene investigator that what we called TIs back then, they had 35 millimeter, they had training and good photography, but it was still something they took pictures. They didn't know what they had. And you didn't know until they the the department uh, photo unit would develop them. You had to wait, what, three days usually for scene photos? Yeah, at least. But and then a lot of times in the assault unit, we had so many violent assaults, shooting, stabbings, that uh, a lot of us bought our own thirty-five millimeters, so we didn't run TIs out there on on the easy right. ones. Mm-hmm. And that, and then that went from that. We'd use the Polaroids for like a short, like if we need to take a picture, take it to the office, show other detectives. What do you think, or what do you know this yeah. guy? And it had a and it had a a column on the bottom of that photo where you could actually right, write yeah. date, time, and and metadata. Right. That's that's what metadata was back then. <laughs> right. And now and and then I saw that go from when I was in assaults into homicide, where you're t- you might be able to take a photo of someone with it with an iPhone text it to another team and say this is what we got whatever you know yeah when when i left uh when i retired one of the big rubs that we had on the pd with policy because technology was advancing faster than policy and procedures was shocking yeah right uh you know we we had procedures for how you logged photos etc uh, but one of the things that advanced so quickly was iPhone technology with photos. Right. So I could take a picture of a subject, email it, and within seconds, the entire department had access to, oh, no, that's so-and-so. He, right. he was on this scene. Um, one of my mentors, Tom Gibbons, he, he tells, like, private gun-toting citizens, you know, when you walk out of your door, you're now on camera until right. you get back into your house. And there's better than not chance there's something in your house that will capture evidence. Right. And and that's a, that's a big dynamic change in the criminal justice world, civil justice world now, is that technology change that we're talking about. We deal with a lot now on the PI side yes. of my business. You're, everything you text everything you listen to, everything that you send, that's all tracked and and subject to subpoena under the right circumstances in a civil action. Yeah. So what we see a lot is is guys and gals out there involved in some kind of lawsuit or something having to go to a deposition to explain you know the, the context, context. but exactly. something in context, and, and that's a bad situation anyway because we speak so abbreviated in text that it could be misconstrued. So you've got yeah. to iron out what that conversation was. When did you all, like with the technology that's come on, you were at the DA's office from what oh oh seven to seventeen oh seven to seventeen, and. You were in PI from '09 to the present. Well, I formed the I formed the the agency in '09, but I I worked six months at OSBI, 
working on their DOJ. Right, which is going to be a great topic. That's going to be a great podcast. Podcast in the near future. I may I, even have their former director on tap now. So, Oh, really? Prior to you, your well, incident. Well, I, I would say I, I, there's a ton of people there I respect a lot. I, I didn't really... We'll go into it on a on our own po- future. Po- uh, you're episode. already setting the stage for future podcasts. I'll just that. say that uh, my methods of investigating a homicide <laughs> was vastly different than theirs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, but how much of that, that was rooted in techno- technological advances that did not meet? what their guidelines for evidence collection no, were I today. Think, I think, w- I think it's it's a, work philosophies. Yeah, more work, work philosophy. philosophy. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's got way more to do with... Uh, uh, here, here's here's a, a, a great way to explain it in a nutshell, and I've always used this analogy. Neither Gary nor I will sit in here and say, I solved this murder. I'm right. a great guy. Murder investigations require a huge amount of people to bring working together. Working together, and in those in those situations, it may be patrol officers gathering intel. Patrol officers uh, solve far more homicides than anybody does. That was that's a, a startling revelation I had when I transferred to a new division. And realized that ninety percent of the the killings that we worked, we had solved before the investigators. Right, went. but a patrol officer can also irreparably damage a case. That's true. That's true. If, also, if it's if he does not follow the basic, and and I think uh, a lot of the differences I faced at OSBI, and we can go on this on another. That's a whole another rabbit hole, man. But. But it really had to do with styles, and like Gary said, it's it's techniques and what they were the systems they worked with versus the systems I worked with. So, I am going to have to say real interject, quick, please. We're going to this is going to have to be the cell phone uh, episode of technology, right? Because we've on. talked in depth about that. For me, there are two other tremendous technological changes or advancements yeah. that have greatly impacted law enforcement and life in general. DNA. DNA. Huge. I made in my career off of DNA. That's what video. I ended up doing. Video. Video. Yeah. Video when, becoming readily available. When I went to homicide, it was rare to have video evidence. Absolutely. High-risk environments such as a convenience store, a convenience store in a bad a- area, you might have. Do you remember what they call those old cameras at the robbery uh, unit? We actually maintain them. Yeah. We being the police department. The robbery unit maintained The robbery them. unit went out and maintained, and they were basically a 35-millimeter Motion activated hit, camera, hit, yeah, yeah. They were motion. They were activated by a trigger when you pulled a certain money from the drawer or whatever. Right. But to see and go from that till now, it's rare to not have video evidence on right. a case. Everybody, it's so available. Everybody has it. And I, know. I was involved in an incident in two thousand and four. I find and, that hard to believe. Yeah, right. Um, 
and it was a very minuscule deal, but uh, some kids with, uh, at the time, airsoft guns mm. with the orange tips removed were pointing guns at people. And I, I jumped them, and I'm giving them commands, and I run into these kids that are quote-unquote armed, uh, they hadn't pulled a robbery or anything. This is just like a bunch Still of very dangerous behavior. It, absolutely. And it was a bunch of, uh, like preteen aged kids that were just hassling people with guns. And, and I called them, uh, they were going to armed robbery school. They just hadn't graduated right, yet. Right. Uh, but I jump them on a, on a deal, me and a, a dear friend of mine, Aaron. And, uh, we're giving them commands. We're, we have guns drawn at low ready, and we're, we're giving them commands and put them on the pavement, and it's like a bunch of kids. And we handcuff a few of them and realize, okay, these, these kids have the modern-day equivalent of a pellet gun. And I'll never forget my boss walking up and going, they have this on cell phone video. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, cell phone video? What, what do you mean? Uh, well, one of the parents had a... Uh, Nokia razor or something or an Autel razor phone. Oh yeah, yeah. And I went, uh, I'm not worried about it. Why, why are you bringing this to my attention? Well, you know, if you said anything or if you did anything that might've been out of bounds, we're going to review it. And, yeah. uh, I Instead said, of treating it like evidence of the, uh, it, which is well, exactly what I said. I said, well, go seize their phone. Cause that's evidence. Right. Oh, uh, I don't know if we can do that. We might have to call people out to, and that was the first time I saw a real technological shift where even the people that are in the collection of evidence business didn't really know what to do. I'll tell you when the real shift came with that was Rodney King. Yes. That's when, I don't think that was a phone though, was it? That was an eight millimeter video camera. Yeah, Yeah, that's one video camera was readily available to everybody that wanted it within a reason. It was affordable. I mean, it was right. affordable. And, you know, uh, had and that not aired, all you would have had was a story of, provided yeah, right. by the, the officers on that. So, but this deal in, in 2004, we seized video, and it was this grainy, like, terrible digital video that got emailed and and of course it supported the the narrative of the the police at the time but that was the first time i went oh wow people have in their pocket the ability to videotape what's going on right now and And i saw that as a major shift in the way that we collected evidence not only that, but it came, it became a major evidentiary issue. Yes. And it resulted in Supreme Court decision. It did. Because prior to, uh, well, I'm, I'm not even going to guess the year now, but not that far in the distant past, we could open a cell phone and look at anything in it without a warrant. Without right? a warrant. And then this what you and I are calling a cell phone is not really a cell phone. A phone is a minor function of the device. It is a computer. It is, uh, it's it's a camera. It's a video camera. It's an audio recorder. 
And you currently, right now, have more computing power in front of you or in your pocket than they did when they landed on the moon in 69. My father was an, our, our father, and your grandfather was an IBM hardware engineer. Yep. He talks about some of the bank systems that he used to maintain. Whole and I want to say they were IBM 360 systems. Yep. Yeah. And they would be a complete floor of a building. Right. Banks and banks of hard drives. And a hard drive looked like a supersized uh, reel-to-reel recorder with reels that were changed right. out. And they didn't have the computing power as my iPhone does right now. Yeah, I still I still have some of the arc or um, from the archives some of those like data collection devices. And uh, he handed me a, a reel of what looked like uh, Kodak film, and he said, "Right there is one megabyte of data." Oh, yeah. And you have iPhones that are over one terabyte, which is right. over 100 million times what that, that yeah. is. Uh, and we have uh, one of the things I do is Patreon. I have the ability to monetize a high-definition video system from my phone and upload it to the well, public instantly. So, look, it, and it, charge a fee for it, which if you... You're not a subscriber. What was an Please influencer? Do. What is an influencer? That now, is a new term of the last seven it, years. The last few years, all of a sudden, I have the power to take an iPhone and make money from it. Yeah, yeah. Or, or or drive consumer uh, consumer purchasing, et cetera. But uh, it, it's it's interesting to me in our era from seventy nine to eighty five. That's a six year window. In that six-year window, think about technological advances. So, yeah, we had the spatial incident of 85. Right. But uh, 79 to 85, that's a six-year window. There were cell phones available, but they were only available to people that were of means. Well, when I came out six years after Gary, very little had changed. Right. As far as how an well, you got was equipped. polycarbonate batons as opposed right. to hickory, right? Yeah. Well, and I went back to hickory, and that could be a whole story. That could but, be a whole nother but, podcast. But shortly after I came on, all these advances in cell phones started coming out, and it became as affordable and all that. So, well, what would you say? Let's round this episode out with what would Kyle? What would you say the largest, most influential technological advance? in your career up until 2009, let's not even go into the PI world in law enforcement up until 2009, what was the largest technological advance and how did it affect you? Well, for me, it's easy. It's DNA. Okay. And we went from, uh, when I came out, blood type, they were blood typing secretor, non secretor, very, very iffy stuff to to hang on somebody, but as as the years go by, you had DNA. You had DNA become more advanced to the point it is now, where it's it's astronomically beyond what we we knew. They could they could tell you what you ate. 
Yeah, well, I got you. Eventually, they're going to be able to probably well, look get at the an gen- idea of look what the, you look like. The genealogical DNA that is now right. Uh, the Golden State Rapist. Uh, so many Green of River the, Killer. Uh, Green. Uh, so many of these cases, the advances in in DNA technology have resulted in uh, cases being closed. 40, 50 years after the fact. Right, and it's uh, one of the things that always kind of amazed me as a cold case detective, and we can go into this on its own episode, just purely DNA, but uh, the thing that amazed me is we went from uh, a system where they could say, well, we can't eliminate this person from being the contributor of that evidence to, oh, it's this person more than the population of the earth. Right. So what was, in your time, what was the biggest technological advance that affected you? And we could even go all the way in through the DA's office. I would say it affected me generally is what we've talked about the most here is the uh, the evolution of communication devices, right. specifically cell phone and cell phone technology, uh, as far as it relates strictly to uh, uh, crimes, DNA, DNA is, uh, as a matter of fact, it's almost had an opposite effect. If you don't have DNA, right, it's hard to move forward with a case, whereas in the past. Absolutely. Uh, you would have moved forward. All right. Technological advances in law enforcement and how they affected everyone involved. Thank you for tuning in to episode, uh, I guess this is episode three now, or two officially. We had the intro episode and one previous episode of Who We Are. Hope you stay tuned for the upcoming series. Please, if you haven't, like the podcast, share the podcast on social media, and subscribe on uh, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Blueberry, Podbean, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, we'll be there. All right, this has been the EI Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Check out Eastridge Investigations and uh, RNG Firearms as an honorary sponsor of the podcast, as well as EDC Belt Company rngfirearms.com and edcbeltcode.com.